0: Today, we're speaking with Lindsay Hamrick. As Policy Director for Companion Animals at the Humane Society of the United States, Lindsay Hamrick works to support local, state, and federal policies protecting pets. She holds an MS in Animals and Public Policy from Tufts Veterinary School and was previously the New Hampshire State Director for HSUS, passing stronger animal cruelty laws, including a successful 2017 campaign to allow cats with feline leukemia and FIV to be placed into loving homes. Yay! Prior to her role in advocacy, she spent a decade as chief operating officer overseeing operations at 3 of New Hampshire's animal shelters. Lindsay, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thanks so much, Stacy. So glad to be here congratulations on your promotion with HSUS. For folks that are interested, Lindsay is now Katie Lisnack's position, is that correct? That's right. So Katie Lisnick went on to become an executive director of
1: an animal shelter in Maine, and we miss her terribly, but um, it did open up an opportunity for me to be able to work on a national scale on the policies that impact companion animals.
0: Well, I'm so glad that you're able to be with me today, and it'll be a pleasure to have you on the show, hopefully, in the future. But first, let's uh, take a step back and uh, share with folks, how did you get started in animal welfare? You definitely are a passionate, passionate animal lover. How did you really get started? Like a lot of folks, I knew
1: from a really young age that I wanted to work with animals. And my mom was super supportive of that. So we had a local animal shelter in upstate New York where I lived. And I was maybe 12 She used to drop me off at the shelter and let me hang out with cats and dogs. And it was sort of back in the day. And, you know, there weren't really age restrictions on volunteering at the shelters. We never got any training. Um, I remember sitting in rooms with cats and getting scratched. And it was like the best way to spend a Saturday. So, um, you know, I went to college and majored in animal science and psychology. I was really interested in animal behavior Spent a little bit of time studying primate behavior in college and then really still didn't know what I wanted to do. I wasn't really sure about the careers that were out there that were not down the veterinary path. Um, And I was fortunate enough to land at the Tufts program and get my master's in animals and public policy, which really opened the door for all of the different kinds of work that are out there. And just happened to get my first job at a shelter in New Hampshire and loved the operational component and managing the cruelty investigations and medical care and behavioral care. And now here I am trying to take all of that on the ground experience and see what we can do on a policy basis on the national scale. What
0: have you seen over the years being from the boots on the ground type role as well as balcony looking? I mean, what do you see as the greatest or some of the greatest challenges that we face as an industry?
1: I think one of the biggest challenges is that when you're working in an animal shelter or a rescue organization, you're so busy. You don't have even an ounce of time to think about how policy impacts the work that you're doing until it really impacts what you're doing and you get frustrated with the process. So for me, that came in two ways. I worked in Denver, Colorado for a brief period of time where there is breed-specific legislation. And I don't think it was until I worked there that I realized how a state law or a, a city ordinance could really impact exactly what we were trying to do. And then I came back to New Hampshire and because of one word in the law, the shelters were either required to euthanize cats with leukemia and FIV or find um, alternative transfer to rescue for them. It just became this really big mobilization of the shelters and rescues to try to change that policy. And, And I think the more that we can all get organized and prioritize the issues that impact companion animals, the faster we're going to see change. I think on the community cat front, it's abundantly clear that cats have been second in all of the policies that have been pushed forward. Um, And certainly community cats and that unowned population has really been swept under the rug. And we're now trying to make sure that there aren't negative policies impacting those animals, but also Let's be proactive. Let's be progressive in how we're addressing all of these challenges.
0: And that's a very fancy dance. I would say as a group, it's a probably a pretty decisive issue to policy or not to policy with regards to free romaine cats. Do you have any thoughts or ideas? Is there one way we should be leaning or you know, so many people are like, oh, well, we have to have mandatory spay-neuter. And then the other people are like, well, no, because then what happens to the cats that don't get spayed and neutered? So is there any guidance to folks as to should we be thinking one way or the other? Absolutely. You know, and I think that
1: that all starts from the ground level and organizations having conversations. Some of the solutions that work in one state or one town aren't necessarily going to be the solutions that work in another. And I think the more that we prioritize looking at cats and how they're impacted in policy, the more great ideas are going to come up that we can all learn from on the spay neuter front we are opposed to mandatory spay-neuter across the board. I mean, whether it has to do with the community cat world or pet owners having to spay and neuter animals, we've seen some legislation this year that would require, for example, pit bull type dogs to be spayed and neutered. And we have concerns about that mandate. In our experience, providing free spay-neuter to communities is the solution. And, And I don't think that community cats should be left out of that conversation. And how can we best support the efforts of local TNR groups, but also the local local humane societies, which at least in New England now have enough bandwidth that if they haven't been working on community cat issues on a high level, certainly now have the bandwidth and resources to do that now.
0: I'll play a little bit of a devil's advocate on that one, because yes, they may have the resources. I'm not sure about the bandwidth or the visionary direction. I feel that there's a lot of challenges in New England, and I think we'll be facing this across the country as to really choosing what constituents they're serving in their markets. And I think that's a great challenge for us looking forward to what the industry is going to look like in three to five years.
1: Absolutely. And it's such a great opportunity for the shelters, the quote unquote established shelters that have been around for a long time to be listening to the on the ground TNR groups that have been out in the field for a while. And there should be some great partnerships that exist and that come out of that as we move into the next few years of animal welfare.
0: I really hope so. I really hope so. Lindsay, I was so interested to hear that you were down in Puerto Rico. There was a big spay-neuter project that kicked off maybe a couple of years ago or maybe even just a year ago. Tell me if my timeline is correct on that. It's a huge spay-neuter project um, with HSUS and various other organizations. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So Speyathon for Puerto Rico is a program that the Humane Society of the United States has really not only gotten behind, but created out of this really great idea. We've been in Puerto Rico for about five years through our Humane State program, which is a program where we target a state, or in this case, Puerto Rico, and try to dump as many resources and education into, into one place at a time. And in Puerto Rico, before Hurricane Maria hit, we had been there for a few years doing things like humane education and training for law enforcement and prosecutors, as well as looking at Puerto Rico's laws to see where things could be strengthened. All of that was going really well. And then, of course, tragedy hit and Hurricane Maria came along. And really, the work that not only HSUS had been doing, but of course, the hundreds of organizations that are in Puerto Rico that are trying to address the homeless pet population, they were just put back a decade because of all of these people and families who needed to either evacuate the island and could not take their pets with them, which led to a massive amount of abandonment for understandable reasons, or just that. Company complete lack of access to veterinary care or the economics to be able to provide that care to the pets that they did have. So the Humane Society of the United States looked at what can we do post Maria to really try to curb the flow of unwanted and overpopulation of animals. And Tara Lawler, who is our senior director of strategic campaigns, came up with this idea that we really needed to just be there providing this free spay neuter in similar ways to how HSUS does this with our Pets for Life program as well. So it's a huge collaboration. It involves 26 organizations, and we truly could not do this work with out all of the organizations that are either funding the work, providing a lot of the equipment that we need, or the -the on-the-ground organizations. The setup of it is each time that we go, and we've finished three rounds, we're about to do the fourth. Each time that we go, we have about six to eight sites across the island. And at each of those sites is at least three organizations that are working together to provide that free spay-neuter for the week that we're there on the island.
0: And is this for owned cats and dogs, or how is it serviced, or who are they servicing, and is it just for spay-neuter, or is it for other stuff, too?
1: So it's only for spay-neuter. The animals do receive vaccines when they're with us for that day. And then, of course, if a veterinarian during their examination sees something that's concerning, we'll make sure that the pet owner is aware of that so that they can do follow-up. It is technically for owned animals, although I use that term loosely because really what we're looking for is an animal that has a person attached to it that can make sure that the dog or cat recovers properly. We have been able to spay neuter quite a few community cats while we've been there because they have wonderful caregivers who have brought them to the clinics while we're there. But for the most part, what we're seeing is owned dogs and owned cats.
0: So very few cats are coming in in traps. Most everybody's coming in in carriers? Yeah, if that. I mean, most
1: of the, or pockets. <laughs> of the
0: lines, yep,
1: exactly. So most of the lines for the clinic, you know, people are just holding their cats in their arms, and that's perfectly fine. But we've reached about we did just over twenty four thousand spay neuters so far in just a year, and of those, over seven thousand have been cats, which is a really great showing of how all of the folks in Puerto Rico value cats. That this has not been just about pet dogs.
0: So with you being there so intensively, are there any estimates of what the actual population is that needs assistance?
1: Yeah, we've tried to figure out what the total would be. We estimated that there's probably about 300,000 stray dogs um, and unknown dogs on the island, which is just astronomical. And of course, you know, there's, there's not great numbers for community cats, but we would assume it's a very high number as well. We wanted to focus on the owned population because we recognize that when pet owners don't have the resources to get their animals spayed and neutered, it is what is leading to the overpopulation that we see in the streets. And people, just like anywhere and any organization that offers free spay neuter, what we find time and time again is that people want the service. We have absolutely no trouble getting people to show up for these clinics, if anything, we've had to turn people away because we don't have enough capacity. And so it truly is such a wonderful community service. And I still can't get over the number of pet owners who find a way to take the entire day off of work, stand in line for eight hours before we even open, just to make sure that their cat gets a chance to get spayed and neutered in the first place, and then wait all day while their cat gets done so that they can be there when the cat recovers from surgery.
0: Trying to catch a pregnant cat in time? Are you after that last cat who isn't fixed in your 10-cat colony? Got a wily feral who just won't go into a box trap no matter how much you spend on roasted chicken? How about catching a litter of kittens all at once with their mom? All these tough trapping situations and more can be solved if you know how to use a drop trap. Join Neighborhood Cats co-designers of the first mass-manufactured drop trap on the market as they demonstrate how to best use this trapper's best friend, the drop trap. A Trapper's Best Friend is a webinar presented by the Community Cats Podcast and Neighborhood Cats on Saturday, June 29th, 2019, from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. To sign up, go to communitycatspodcast.com. We'll see you there. Catalogical exists to help cat parents love their kitties better with the most in-depth cat food reviews online, plus hundreds of other fact-based articles. Catalogical is your one-stop shop when it comes to learning more about your cat. Catalogical works with multiple retail partners to provide custom coupons on everything from automatic litter boxes to microbiome testing, so you're also likely to save when you choose one of their recommended products. When I've done past interviews with organizations that have done projects on islands, one of the concerns that seems to be pretty standard is the fact that private veterinary care, the private resources that are there day in and day out are extremely limited. Is that the case in Puerto Rico?
1: Yeah, it's very much the case. And I'm really pleased because the um, Calejijo, which is the Organization of Veterinarians in Puerto Rico... They've been close partners with us on this project, so they've been able to help us understand what's going on on the ground, what are the resources after Speyathon is done. Uh, I'm really excited to announce that the Puerto Rican government, the governor, and the First Lady just announced two weeks ago that we will be extending Speyathon for two more years. So our original goal was to reach 25,000 animals. We now think that we'll reach close to 100,000 animals when this project is said and done. A lot of the equipment that's been donated for this purpose, we are leaving on the island when we're done. So there's a a move to establish some long-term spay-neuter clinics on the island after this project is done. And with that would come donations of all of the things that we've used.
0: So that's creating a sustainability package there.
1: Absolutely. And our thoughts from the very beginning were, it's great to go and do targeted spay-neuter. It certainly would have an impact regardless. But what we all wanna see is long-term change in that, that sustainable model.
0: So it sounds like not only do you have the support of 26, you said 26 different organizations, and I'm assuming those are local as well as off-island organizations. So there's funders, and then there's operations help from other groups. Uh, I remember seeing some postings of some of the organizations that came down and uh, collecting their numbers and that kind of thing and reporting in on their numbers at the various sites that they were supporting. But you also mentioned some political components. Have you had any challenges or options? obstacles during this process? Or has it been rah, rah, sis, boom, bah, and let's look at all the dogs with all their like outfits? <laughs>
1: <laughs> there are some amazing outfits and hair colors on dogs in Puerto Rico, I'll tell you. Um, I would say from the government perspective, the governor and the first lady, the first lady in particular has been an incredible advocate and ally of ours in this program. And she has been with us every step of the way to help the municipalities support us when we're there because we don't go back to the same towns every time. And we take up a lot of space. The last round, every clinic was in a giant basketball stadium. So those stadiums have to allow us to come in and have (laughs) a few thousand animals come through and have a lot of public around and safety measures and all of the things that go into the logistics. So the government, both on the local and on the the state level, has been very supportive. I'm sure behind the scenes there's been some, you know, complications here. And there, mostly logistical issues of how you get all of the supplies that we need over to the island and make sure that they stay in the right kind of refrigeration and all of the infrastructure that's typically needed for this work. But Tara has done such an amazing job making sure that we can pull this off. And the 26 organizations, it of course is funders like Maddie's Fund, PetSmart Charities, Petco Foundation. And then every site has a local nonprofit organization that understands the local dynamics. So at the site that I have been at the last few times, we have the Sato Project, uh, which has been working in Puerto Rico for a long time, has a great sense of what's going on. And so they help us with all of the ins and outs of the clinic and talking to the public. And then we have a surgical team at each site. And the surgical team that I've been working most closely with is called Helping Paws Across Borders. And they're not specific to Puerto Rico, but they have veterinarians who have done the island spay neuter work all over the place. So these are veterinarians who very much understand, you know, the MASH style of spay-neuter and how to get this done really well.
0: It sounds like there's a, um, a good operations manual, obviously, out there for where each site sets up and general rules and protocols that everybody has to agree to follow. And I mean, it, it does sound like it's worse than the Boston Marathon, which, you know, it sounds, it's amazing. <laughs>
1: It's amazing. I mean, the number of planning calls, of course, now into another round, people have practiced enough that it, it runs more smoothly the longer you do it. But even the first round, I could not believe how smoothly things ran. And of course, each time we debrief about what worked well and what didn't and how we can better support the communities. And we have a medical director. So we have a lead veterinarian who sets all of the medical protocols for every site. And to your point about data, one of the most exciting parts about this program is that we are collecting tens of thousands of data points about an island population, about how spain may impact that population long term. And the University of Florida is analyzing that data. So there should be an update on data each year. And then, of course, after the three years is completed, we should see some really amazing summaries about what this program has done.
0: So I have two questions. One is, now that you've been at the island for several times, are you noticing pockets or were there pockets where maybe the overpopulation situation wasn't so bad and then there are other pockets that you're micro-targeting? And then also, has this impacted moving more animals off the island for adoption?
1: So, I think like most geographies, there's always areas that are sort of worse off than others. One of the most devastating parts of Hurricane Maria was that the people that were living up in the mountain ranges truly did not get very many resources or even have electricity for well over a year after the hurricane hit. So, we did schedule a clinic up closer to those regions to be able to try to offer some support to those families. But I think overall, you know, when you're talking about possibly 300 hundred thousand homeless dogs and more than that for cats. It's a small island. So clearly it's a systemic issue in terms of access to low cost or free veterinary care on the island.
0: Have you seen more animals being transferred off the island for adoption? I mean, I know that's been happening in the past. I just didn't know if maybe with more attention, there's been more aggressive movement.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know that the transport programs have increased necessarily. Um, The Sato Project, which is the on the ground team that I work with, they've been doing transports for a long time. And I don't know that they've increased their frequency so much as they are able to take, I think there's a lot of hope from the groups that have been working on the ground for so long, being able to see this high volume targeted spay neuter happening, because of course those groups have been offering spay neuter for a long time. But when you see it happen in such a huge volume in a short span of time, I think there's a lot of hope. I I think the need for homes outside of the island will continue for quite a while.
0: Are there any last thoughts that you have with regards to the Puerto Rico project that you'd like to share with our listeners before we uh, touch base on a couple other issues?
1: I think uh, we've gotten a lot of questions about how people can help and whether or not they can volunteer. And we have been grateful to have the support of a lot of local animal shelters who have sent their shelter veterinarians so that those veterinarians can get a sense of what a project like this looks like. And there's so much interest in it that the waiting list is a little bit long, but certainly feel free to reach out if you have staff or veterinary technicians or veterinarians that are interested in learning about this project.
0: Before I let you go today, Lindsay, one thing I used to do with Katie was we sort of did our little policy jeopardy game. So I just wanted to touch base with you and ask you if there are any hot topics happening on the forefront this spring.
1: Yeah, so we've been following a couple of bills that impact community cats specifically, most of them fairly positive. So one of the positive trends we've been seeing is this understanding that TNR is not abandonment. Many states have abandonment laws that have either criminal or civil penalties attached to them. And we want to make sure that TNR is not seen. As an abandonment issue. And so we've seen some good bills in Illinois and in Iowa to try to recognize that difference and to define what the return is in TNR. And the Rhode Island bill, which I think your podcast has covered before, which has been uh, a little bit of a challenging bill, the legislature in Rhode Island has just put that into a study, which gives everybody a little bit more time to figure out what the common ground is. Uh, The HSUS's concerns on that bill have typically been that there's a lot of requirements and restrictions for people that are caring for a group of community cats, and we just want to make sure it strikes the balance between responsible TNR and not too many restrictions.
0: Excellent. If folks are interested in finding out more about HSUS and their work with community cats, um, how would they do that?
1: Sure. So you can certainly contact me, and my email is L Hamrick, L H A M R I C K at humanesociety.org. And of course, Danielle Bays, who is our cat guru, who is monitoring all kinds of legislation and programs impacting community cats. And her email is dbays, D-B-A-Y-S
0: at humanesociety.org. Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? I think we covered it. One thing I want to stress is that you get an idea. Somebody must have had the idea for doing the Spayathon in Puerto Rico. Somebody had that little desire to create something. And with that, there have been 24,000 surgeries. So if you have this little idea and you think it couldn't happen, take that negative Nelly thought right out of your head and you can make it happen. So I just want to encourage folks to really believe in the opportunity to be able to make change, even if you think you are running against some incredible obstacles. And it's a great partnership, 26 groups working together, great way to communicate. Collaboration is also key. So I I really just like to make sure folks go home today and really believe that they can make things happen in their own communities. And Lindsay, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. And I really hope we'll have you on again in the future. It's been wonderful. Thanks so much, Stacey. Join us June 21st through 23rd for a kitten focused event presented by the National Kitten Coalition and the Community Cats Podcast. This three-day virtual gathering will feature presentations by experts on raising and saving kittens. Setting up and managing kitten centered shelter programs and more. Early bird tickets are available now through April 30th for just $50. And after that, $75 tickets will be available through June 22nd. So don't wait, sign up for the 2019 online kitten conference.